It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm Claire Hubble, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, after Russia announces its retreat from Herzon City, we discuss the implications of what some are calling the most significant moment in the war since the Ukraine counteroffensive began. But is this really the triumph it appears, a damning defeat for Russian forces? Or is there more to it than meets the eye? This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Putin's war in Ukraine has destabilized energy markets the world over. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from The Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Thursday, the 10th of November, day 260. And today, I'm joined by Assistant Comment Editor Francis Dernley, Senior Foreign Correspondent Roland Oliphant, and The Telegraph's Brussels Correspondent in Ukraine, Joe Barnes. I started by asking Roland for details of Putin's latest retreat in Kherson. Yeah, right. So I think it, it took a, a lot of us by surprise. So um, yesterday afternoon, probably kind of early evening Moscow time, um, there was a, a televised briefing in which General Sergei Surovkin, that's the uh, commander in chief of, of Russia's forces in Ukraine, uh, briefed Sergei Shoigu the defence minister, um, and he basically said to Shoigu, um, look, I've assessed the situation from all angles, and the reality is um, the best thing for us to do is to withdraw from Kherson, uh, the part of Kherson region on the right bank of, that's the west bank of the Dnipro River, um, and happens to include the the city of Kherson, the, the regional capital, although he didn't mention that, um, to withdraw our troops from there, um, just give it up, uh, use the Dnipro, which is uh, the major um, geographic barrier in Ukraine, as, as a defensive line. Um, and his justification for that was, look, um, the logistics aren't working. Um, it's, it's not what we want to do. We're not going to win by retreating. But on the other hand, this is the way we're going to save lives and we're going to preserve um, the the combat capability um, of the army. Sergei Shoigu said, um, I agree with your analysis and conclusions um, and told him to do it with all speed um, and to preserve the lives of, of both um, soldiers. And and interestingly, uh, Shoigu uh, told him to uh, make a point of letting those civilians who want to leave, those civilians who perhaps collaborated with the Russians, um, are able to get out as well. So a, a major kind of development because we've known the Russians have been in trouble in Kherson for a long time. They've been they, they've been putting up a pretty, you know, a pretty bullish defense in the face of, of the big Ukrainian push down there. It hasn't, they haven't made it easy for the Ukrainians, but they've been losing ground. Um, and the reality, the reality was really pretty much as, as Sergei Sorovkin um, told Mr. Shoigu, which is that it, it was in the long term an untenable position. Um, so hugely significant politically, um, because it is a... Uh, it's, I'm losing count. Is it the third, fourth major defeat for the Russians? I mean, that they retreated from Kiev when they realized they couldn't take that. They were, they were driven back from Kharkiv. Um, then they collapsed in Kharkiv. Um, so this is, this is something like the third major, major 
um, kind of operational level setback for the Russians um, since this war began. There's absolutely no way of spinning it in any other way. And Russian state TV isn't trying to spin it in that way. Um, so the, the messaging is quite tightly controlled. Um, uh, Russian state TV propagandists, the usual kind of characters, Mr. Sovolyov and his TV show talking about a, a difficult decision. But, you know, you've got to be brave to make those kinds of decisions. No one wants to make it. But, you know, well done for the general for, 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 for making the difficult but correct choice. And interestingly, you know, the, the real loud mouths at the, the top of the, of the Russian pyramid, um, people like uh, Ramzan Kadyrov um, and Yevgeny Prigozhin, um, who respectfully run, you know, Kadyrov's got his own basically private army of um, of Chechen fighters and uh, Prigozhin runs Wagner. Um, they've been very vocally critical of uh, the defense ministry um, at some points in this conflict, but they are they are reading from the same hymn sheet. They've, they've clearly been told, come on, uh, get on message. And um, I'll just read you what um, it said, Prigozhin... Um, I don't have the quote exactly to hand, but but basically the same thing. You know, th- this is the correct decision. It's difficult, um, and so on. So that's that's the message from the Russians. Um, the other significant thing, of course, although not entirely surprising, is that there was no sign of Vladimir Putin during this. Um, I mean, th- this was set up in the manner of a Vladimir Putin televised meeting with his officials. Uh, you know, there, there's there's Minister Shoigu um, at his briefing table. An official comes in, briefs him. And 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 the big boss says, uh, "Granted, yeah, okay, let's do do as you suggest." Um, th- this is a routine thing on Russian television, but it usually shows Putin um, telling officials to do good or positive things. Um, and and it's 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 very transparent how Shoigu um, and Surovkin have been made to carry the can um, for what is clearly a defeat. Um, now. That said, have, have they actually retreated yet? The Ukrainians are being very cautious. They're saying that they see no sign that uh, the Russians are going to quit Kherson without a fight. Um, that said, Valery Zaluzhny, um, the chief Ukrainian general, did say that the Ukrainians have retaken 12 settlements in the past 24 hours. Um, he, wouldn't, he wouldn't say earlier today, um, it refused to confirm basically when asked uh, whether or not he can see signs of the Russians actually leaving. Um, it's going to be a difficult and drawn out operation if the Russians are going to live up to their word to do that. But um, significantly, we do have um, kind of photo confirmation of Ukrainian troops inside a village called Snikhorovka, which is about well, just under 30 miles straight north from Kherson. That has been a, a linchpin in the Russian defensive line. Um, it's been very intensively fought over for the past few weeks. Ukrainians are now in there, so there's definite signs of progress. Thank you for that, Roland. Coming to you next, Joe, what has the Ukrainian response been, particularly that of President Zelensky? Hi, folks. Yeah, we've raced down to Krivery, which is kind of used as a staging post for Western journalists uh, to get into the Kherson region uh, this morning in kind of response to the news. Um, but so the Ukrainian reaction has been rather muted. It's It's, it's been not one of excitement, but one of kind of hesitation and not wanting to over kind of not accelerate any sort of push into Kherson. Um, So in his overnight address last night, President Zelensky, he urged caution and he basically maintained the operational secrecy, the, the kind of fog of war that Roland often talks about when he's on the podcast over what Ukraine is doing in the South. So he said, and I quote him, we move very carefully without emotions and unnecessary risks in the interests of the liberation of our entire land and so that there are a few losses as possible. Um, so when I was in Krivi Reed last a few weeks ago, um, we met a field surgeon, a military field surgeon. And this chap was basically saying that during the heaviest days of fighting that there are around 250 to 300 Ukrainian soldiers being taken back into Krivi which kind of sits at the rear of the southern counteroffensive. And that basically, during those really intense days, that means more soldiers are wounded um, as they're basically kind of pushing forward as fast as possible. So this is not, this is Ukraine not kind of saying, let's really go gung-ho, let's preserve what we've got, let's make sure that we're not, kind of making any rash decisions in response to what the Russians have said. Um, And there's also still quite a degree of 
reluctance to almost believe the Russians. The um, there's always kind of a a mantra of we'll see it, we'll believe it when we actually see it. And so Mikhailo Podolak, the um, he's one of the key advisors to the Ukrainian president. He last night said, as Roland mentioned earlier, there's no signs of Russian forces leaving Kherson and leaving the city yet. And he said, actions speak louder than words. We see no signs that Russia is leaving without a fight. So it's 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 really that is they are not trying to create a level of excitement. They're not treating it as a major victory yet. They are continuing on their own plan, on their own plan counteroffensive, and they won't let Russia dictate the terms by withdrawing and potentially creating something um, in terms of a dangerous situation for their troops. And I'll stop there for now. Thank you, Joe. And away from the military, I wonder, have you had a chance to speak to any civilians on the ground? And what, what has their response been like to this news? Um, so I have, um, but I won't give too much away because I would urge you to read tomorrow's newspaper because um, myself and a few others um, on the Telegraph's foreign desk are currently working on a dispatch about what about the story of how it unfolded on the ground and how civilians reacted, how um what what the Russian military did in essentially what was a kind of a last days of Rome sort of atmosphere in Herson yesterday and, and this morning and going in today as the news kind of plays out and as the fighting essentially moved closer to the city and so kind of in the last minutes we've seen and please someone uh excuse my pronunciation of this, but uh Kiskalevka, a city just about fifteen kilometres northwest of Herson. They have um, we've seen kind of images of Ukrainian soldiers there. So they are kind of getting close. Um, But how close, again, because of this kind of fog of war and because of this operational secrecy, we really don't know where the Ukrainians and how far they've got. So it could be kind of days before we actually see some major uh, kind of operation in and around Kherson itself. Thank you for that, Joe. Francis, I have a question for you next. Given that Moscow only orchestrated a sham referendum in September in order to make Kherson become part of Russia, how humiliating is this defeat? And will Putin recognise it as such? Thanks, Claire, and good afternoon, everyone. I think that's a a really important point to emphasise here. I mean, this is very much a strategic defeat, but I think it really should be underlined the symbolic nature of this defeat as well. As you say, it was only a matter of months ago that we had that incredible ceremony in uh, Moscow, where we saw, of course, Putin joining hands on stage with the four men appointed to lead the annexed regions, uh, Zaporizhia, of course, Donetsk, Luhansk and Herzon. And so Herzon was meant to be the symbol of this, this, this region that had now become part of Russia forevermore. And, of course, what we're seeing now is that Hezon is now, uh, well, it looks very likely, will we'll, um, become uh, in Ukraine-occupied uh, territory, restored to Ukrainian uh, uh, borders, at least um, in, in, in an active sense. And not only that, of course, that one of the men who was having that ceremony with Putin and and joining hands with him and chanting and singing uh, was the Herzon chief that we spoke about yesterday, who uh, it looks like, and we don't know yet, uh, has been assassinated by partisan activity. So this is a really, really significant moment. And to Roland's point, I think, however people try and spin this, and not only Putin's propagandists, but also there have been a lot of uh, prominent uh, military hawks on on Russian Telegram who have been trying to sell this as a necessary and and, uh, important strategic manoeuvre. Indeed, I saw one who was comparing it to the retreat by General Kutuzov, uh, abandoning Moscow in 1812 uh, for the sake of preserving his army uh, against Napoleon. I mean, this kind of... uh, way of selling it, however much one seeks to do so, the symbolic sense, I think, isn't lost on on anybody. And this is a humiliation, really, for the Russian state. But it's significant in another symbolic, symbolic way, too. And that is, 
that the international community is watching this. And at a critical moment, another pivotal moment, just as we saw with the counteroffensive many months ago, there are a lot of questions being asked, as there, there have been recently, about what the future trajectory of the war is looking like. Is it going to be a stalemate? Are the Ukrainians going to be able to continue that push and that sense of momentum which will keep Europe unified and the Western world unified in its support of Ukraine as we enter the critical months of winter. As I've spoken about this week already at length, there were questions being asked about whether Ukraine can actually continue uh, to, to, to be successful. And there were concerns, particularly in um, Washington, that certain partners uh, were, were wobbly. Um, to put it mildly. And and so this, once again, Ukraine have been able to show that the momentum is with them. Uh, and not only that, that as we enter this crucial period, that there's going to be substantial military activity. Again, to Roland's point, this is going to take many weeks for Russia to retreat. There's something about 20 to 30,000 Russian troops in Hezon that you can't just remove those in two or three days. So we now know that for at least the next few weeks and months that Hezon is going to be being talked about. It's going to show that the military map is evolving and changing. That winter stalemate that many feared and that was being used as a weapon to justify potential peace plans is now being eroded away. And many, many politicians will no doubt be talking about the fact that that it is now looking more again likely that Ukraine are able to launch and successfully deliver substantial military successes. So I think, as I say, there's the strategic side of this, which we've already talked about, but the symbolic one is as important, I think, and one that no doubt is not being lost to the Ukrainians and and, and Western politicians. Thank you for that, Francis. Uh, My next question, to what extent do you think the retreat might be an attempt at deception by luring Ukrainian soldiers into the city and blindsiding them with an attack? Well, I think um, Volodymyr Zelensky said last night, the enemy does not give us gifts um, and I think it's he's absolutely right to be to be cautious. And um, you know, is it, is it Podolyak as well made made this comment about believe it when you see it? I mean that that is absolutely a hundred percent my rule of thumb when 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 dealing with announcements by the Russian government. Um, it, it really is a question of believe it when you see it. And um, <laughs> there is a big difference between an announcement and a fact on the ground. Um, now that said, I think. I think this probably is going to happen because I think, as I said earlier, I think the the basic nub of the report um, that the, the, the Russian commander in Ukraine gave Sergei Shoigu in this televised um, stage-managed televised meeting is basically true. I mean, it's a fact. It is basically long-term untenable. So my my gut feeling is it is going to be a retreat. They are going to do this. And, and the reason they've publicized it is is to get ahead of the narrative. They want to show that they're in control and they can spin it as a, a Dunkirk or something, um, or, you know, or, or, yeah, you know, Kutuzov's retreat from Moscow or something like that, rather than um, that utter disaster in Kharkiv back in September where they were just routed and it was, and it was a complete collapse. Now, that said, um, we know, um, you know, we know about Russian retreats. We know quite a lot about Russian retreats now, um, given the past few months. And one of the things they do when they... Um, when they are pulling back, is they booby trap absolutely everything. Um, uh, Wagner, in particular, have a reputation for this. Um, we saw it in in their retreat from uh, around Tripoli and Libya back in um, was it twenty nineteen or twenty twenty. Um, uh, you will have you know hand grenades tied to you know beehives, children's toys, any building you go into. Um, it's going to be uh, absolute. Um, well, literally a minefield, right? Um, so, you know, the Ukrainians moving into villages that the Russians have quote-unquote abandoned will have to go extremely carefully, kind of assuming that every single rock or um, every door handle you touch might blow up in your face. Um, that's absolutely true. Um, and the other point, um, which I think Mikhail Podolyak made, is also that, look, the, the Dnieper there... It's not at its widest, right? It's not miles wide. I think it's about 500 meters across. Um, it's well within range of artillery. So even if the, if the, if the Ukrainians do get into Kherson, um, it is well within range of Russian artillery from the, from the other bank. Um, and and I, I cannot see the 
Russians wanting to do this without extracting as much cost uh, from the Ukrainians as possible. So in, in, in short, I don't think this, this whole announcement is one big feint and uh, a, a maskarovka, to use that, that much maligned and overused <laughs> Russian term. Um, I think it is most likely a genuine retreat. They will try to have nasty surprises in there. But the other question, um, the bigger question, is, is, is what happens elsewhere on the front. Once the, once the Russians have pulled back, um, this front line is going to be pretty static because putting a landing either side crossing that river um, is going to be a very tall order. So we'll expect uh, combat to move, uh, well, you know, maneuver combat to move eastwards. Um, I, I'm, I'm particularly thinking about Saporizhia region, um, but then also, you know, our old friends of Donetsk, Luhansk, Kharkiv um, in the coming months. And of course, if you're if you're retreating, one thing you want to do is to distract your enemy. So it's possible um, you might see a spoiling offensive by the Russians to distract the Ukrainians to to help them carry out this. Uh, uh, this this retreat, this extraction from Herson, uh, more easily. Thank you, Roland. Francis, do you have any thoughts you'd like to add to Roland's? Um, just one thing I would add, uh, which is I think that it, Roland was talking about the broader strategic significance of, of Herzon. And it's been quite an interesting briefing put out by the uh, UK Ministry of Defence this morning saying that, or really underlining the fact that, that the loss of Herzon's West Bank will likely prevent Russia from achieving its strategic aspiration of a land bridge reaching Odessa. So we're talking rightly and focusing on on the symbolic and strategic significance of the city but it's also wider than that it's it's going to have huge ramifications for for the wider front and indeed of course long term will be significant about any attempt by ukraine to take back crimea now that is of course something i think that we're many many months away from but nonetheless, this is a, an important staging post for any attempt to to do so. Um, holding hairs on is, is, is a vital um, strategic thing. Um, and I think just the other thing w- that's worth talking about, to, again, to, to Roland's point and what we've been talking about this week, is that essentially the Russians are retreating in order to build a more effective defensive line. They've already moved their headquarters to the other side of the river some time ago. That was a you know, pretty wise decision, really, given the, the rate of the advance of the Ukrainian troops. And we've talked at length this week about the kind of defences that, that are being built there. And I think that, you know, we're going to see that if they are going to try and, and, and take that territory in due course, the Ukrainians, it's going to be a really, really bloody struggle. It's going to be much more tactically difficult to to take that land, I think, with the kind of defensive operations that the uh, Russians are doing. That's not to say they won't succeed, but I'm saying that it's that it's bloody, as we were talking about yesterday. So a really uh, very, very um, significant development on lots of fronts. Thank you for that, Francis. Another question. Anybody feel free to jump in on. We've spoken about the symbolism of Herson and how this retreat looks symbolically um how will this affect russian morale uh on the front lines and beyond it's never good it's 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 it, it's it's never a good feeling retreating and, and any any general any military profession any army you talk to will talk about it. It, it it's a rule it's almost like a rule of physics um when you're retreating morale is a problem it goes down and and the art of retreat is to to manage that to stop it getting into a route, to stop, um, you know, to kind of to kind of persuade people. Okay, it's not a nice feeling, but we've got to do it, and you've got to maintain your discipline. And doing it under fire um, is immensely difficult, especially when you've got to um, to cross a river um, or, or or to get out at sea. Um, and there are, there are multiple examples through history. Um, I'm sure Francis can pick some out of his head <laughs> um, of that going horrendously wrong. Um, you know, we we in this country are incredibly proud of one episode where we pulled that off, which was Dunkirk. And one of the reasons that was spun into a myth was, you know, partly it's the same reason the Russians are going to try and spin this. You know, it was it was a setback, it was a retreat, it was a defeat. I mean, it was, it was a it, it was a disaster, um, and 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 it had to be spun. But but there is also a fact that pulling that off, that retreat from Dunkirk was a remarkable achievement um 
so the Russians are setting themselves up for what they've already set themselves up, haven't they? They're just kind of recognizing reality um, for an incredibly difficult um, military task, uh, pulling this off. Um, I, I, I would not underestimate them. Um, I, I know they have really, really badly screwed up this war, um, but they're still in the fight. Um, there's still a lot of them. They still have some effective, highly motivated units. Um, and, and, and I think, you know, the Ukrainians are quite right not to underestimate their enemy. Um, but I, I would, I would guess, um, you know, for those guys in the trenches, um, in that very flat farmland in the Southern steep where there isn't much cover, um, now knowing, knowing that, that, that you've got to get back across that river, you've got to get back across one of those very, very narrow bridges, which are going to be covered by Ukrainian artillery and high Mars fire. Um, it is not going to be a good feeling at all. Not very comfortable. Joe, I believe you have some thoughts on another de- defeat for Putin. Uh, please do tell us more. So one of the big victories for Vladimir Putin in taking Kherson was essentially it guaranteed a fresh water supply to Crimea. So um, Roland will probably be able to go through the history of this more because he covered it more extensively at the time. But in 2014, when Moscow illegally annexed Crimea, Kiev responded by essentially erecting a dam to block the North Crimean Canal, and that supplies Crimea with about 80% of its water. And one of the big things, and Russia was very quick to do this, it was about, I think, two or three days into the into the invasion, it destroyed that dam and allowed basically water to flow back into Crimea and to guarantee a supply of fresh water. So now, with kind of Ukraine becoming further in control of this supply of fresh water again, they could rebuild the dam, reblock water. And essentially what this does is it eats away at this kind of aura that Putin and Russia have built up around Crimea being this kind of fortified stronghold where Russia is able to give it the best of everything, have the best security, have the best beaches, the best water supply. And without a great deal of Kherson and with Ukraine backing control of that water supply, it kind of erodes Crimea as a massive Russian kind of stronghold. And again, the further the further Ukraine can move towards the peninsula, the more kind of military bases, the more ammo dumps, the more planes and helicopters will be in the range of of Ukrainian HIMAR fire, which is about 50 miles. And I think Rob Lee on Twitter was yesterday highlighting just how far uh, and much further that the Ukraine's military can kind of penetrate inside of Crimea by just moving into Kherson city itself. So I think that's a, a the water is a fascinating thing and it's it's potentially one way that that Vladimir Zelensky in Ukraine can again look to put a stranglehold on Crimea if it does ultimately opt to go for and try and liberate that after the 2014 annexation. Thank you Joe. Um, one for you Roland and perhaps Joe you could also weigh in. For how long are they, and by they I mean the military and the Russian state media, going to be able to sell this retreat as a heroic and difficult decision? A withdrawal from the front line seems like such an obvious defeat. Will the Russian people really buy it, and for how long? Will they buy it? I mean, I think think the Russian spin doctors in the Kremlin have been quite sensible about this because they're not, they're not trying to sell this um, as, as anything other than a setback. Um, you, you just had to watch the kind of, you know, the, the funereal kind of atmosphere on um, uh, Sovolyov Live, um, the, the, you know, one, one of the main kind of hawkish talk shows um, on Russian TV last night, you know, kind of, look, let's not pretend that, that, that this is anything other than bad news. Um, but, but, you know, and then come the excuses, you know, we're fighting NATO, we're fighting 50% of the global economy, which is delivering war. And, you know, when we thought when we went to war with NATO, it would our nuclear deterrent would, would protect us. But it turns out we're fighting a different war than than was planned for. Um, and, and, and so there we are. And, um, you know, they're, they're trying their best not to be left looking like they're selling a lie. Um, and yet telling, trying to tell people, look, 
it's just it's just one of those painful things. War gives you nasty surprises, um, and and it's got to be done. And there's a look. There's 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 very deep, um, you know, cultural historic memory that they can draw on for that. You know, the Russia, Russians have made uh, this government in particular has made a, 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 an enormous national myth um, out of the Second World War, and everybody knows that the first part of that went incredibly badly for the Russians. Napoleon's invasion in eighteen twelve, that other thing they love to talk about. You know, Moscow was burnt to the ground. Um, Kutuzov had to retreat. Um, so painful retreats and coming back from it is something I think. Um, that you know, the Russian public um, have have a capacity to digest and internalize. Um, however, um, how how many of these can you absorb um, after Kiev, after Kharkiv, now after Kherson? Um, you know what happens next, um, and I think when you talk to Ukrainian officials. Uh, and this is this is the big gap, I think, uh, which maybe we should we should we should touch on the big gap in perception, I think, between a lot of Western officials and diplomats and 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 Ukrainians in Kiev is that a lot of Westerners or Western governments seem to have this idea still that look, eventually this war is going to end in talks, um, and somebody's going to have to sit down and talk to Putin and find something that we all agree on. Um, the The view in Kiev seems to be uh, no. No, guys, um, this is going to end with regime change in Russia when this scale of this military battlefield defeat, this, 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 this continuous succession of setbacks and humiliations and disasters finally comes home to roost in Moscow um, and the whole rotten system over there collapses. Um, so I, I think there is a perception in Kiev that that is probably where the end game of this war. Um, so for now, I, I, don't, I don't think this is a... A mortal blow um, to Russian public morale, necessarily, um, but it's cumulative. It's definitely cumulative, and 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 when the history comes to be written about how this war ends, if it does end that way, people will talk about, um, you know, when they finally had to retreat from Kherson as as one of those elements. Staying on the military theme, Francis, I understand there's been some interesting analysis from the US in the past 24 hours. What can you tell us about that? Yes, well, thanks, Claire. And actually, just riffing off what Roland was saying there, I think he's, he's absolutely right to talk about that disconnect amongst some uh, Western political and military figures and the Ukrainians. Indeed, there's actually been a very interesting one in the last 24 hours. So uh, U.S. Army General Mark Milley, he has uh, made some quite interesting remarks, uh, I think it's fair to say. To, to Roland's point, he's talked about how Russia's retreat from Herzon and a potential stalemate in fighting over the winter could provide both countries with an opportunity to negotiate peace. Now, as I say, he is the US's top general. Um, what we don't know is the degree to which he's going off script here. There's a bit of a sense that he, he might well be. I don't think this aligns with the White House's view, not at least officially, but I think it is indicative and at least symbolic of, of, a, tre- of, of a, a trend in thinking uh, that is, uh, as I say, not unpopular, although I do think there has been a shift certainly in tone in recent days as it's becoming increasingly clear that the Ukrainians are, uh, were being successful in, in Herzon and the Russians were being forced to, to retreat there, as I was talking about earlier on. So um, there has been quite a backlash to this, but his remarks are, and I'll, I'll read a quote directly, he said, there is an opportunity here, a window of opportunity for negotiation. For negotiations to have a chance, both Russia and Ukraine would have to reach a mutual recognition that a victory is maybe not achievable through military means, and therefore you need to turn to other means. Now, as I say, not necessarily representative of uh, the White House's view on the American public view, but nonetheless, that's his personal opinion. The other interesting thing that he talked about is uh, he said that well over 100,000 Russian soldiers have been killed or wounded in the war or in Ukraine. But he also said the same thing probably on the Ukrainian side. There has been a tremendous amount of suffering, human suffering. And he then went on to estimate that around 40,000 Ukrainian civilians have been killed or wounded. Now, again, I don't think this would necessarily be seen as as official figures that are coming out of uh, out of the US. But 
If that is true, those are, of course, very, very high figures for the Russians that would broadly tally with what we've talked about so far uh, in, in our coverage in recent months. But it would be higher than we would expect for the Ukrainians. Typically, when you're on the defensive, then you, you are able to... Uh, lose fewer men, essentially, um, than if you're on offensive operations. So this has caused a little bit of surprise. But as I say, I don't think it should necessarily necessarily be seen as as an official uh, remark. It feels a little bit more off the cuff than that. Um, but nonetheless, I think it's causing a little bit of frustration amongst Ukrainian commentators who feel a bit that, again, it's sounding a little bit like both sides are losing, both sides need to come to a negotiating table. Whereas, of course, from the Ukrainian perspective, they would say they've lost fewer men, certainly fewer resources, and uh, that they are winning the war, as simple as that. So uh, that's the, the, the US uh, general story. And just one other, if I may, I've talked already this week about this ongoing saga around the G20 summit in Indonesia and whether Putin and Zelensky will attend. Well, we now know that Putin will not attend the G20 summit in Bali next week. That's come from an Indonesian government official who's told that to Reuters. He will, however, be represented by the Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov um, and, uh, and, and another uh, official in charge of coordinating maritime and investment affairs. Now, Putin may attend one of the meetings virtually. Now, if he does so, Zelensky has said that he will not take part in the summit. So it's still an ongoing debate, this, about exactly what's going to happen. But interesting that Putin is not going to attend, presumably because pressure has been put on him and also he doesn't want to face embarrassment of being cold-shouldered by um, international politicians and, and, and diplomats. Just one other remark on this is it's quite interesting that Indonesia itself has resisted pressure from Western countries and Ukraine to withdraw Putin's invitation by saying that it actually doesn't have the authority to do so without the consensus among members. And I think that's probably true, actually, that they are hosting it, but they are not actually able to to dictate the terms of who attends because it's up to the G20. So another interesting de- development there in the political space that I just thought it was worth providing an update on because, as I say, potentially quite significant. Thank you, Francis. Following on from what you were saying about uh, Mark Milley, um, sort of making claims about the 100,000 troops killed on either side, as well as 40,000 Ukraine civilians. I understand there's an update on the the future of um, US supplies to Ukraine in that the US has said they won't give advanced drones to avoid escalation. What can you tell us about that? Yes, well, this is another interesting uh, development in in the space that we were alluding to earlier on. There's still concerns around giving Russia an opportunity to escalate things further, an excuse to do so. And indeed, the US have have given Ukraine... already very advanced weaponry, of course, the HIMARS most significantly. But there's an advanced kind of drone that they are saying that they will not give Ukraine. This is formally from the Biden administration saying that they've declined the request based on concerns that providing the Grey Eagle MC-1C drones could escalate the conflict and signal to Moscow that the US was providing weapons that could target the positions inside Russia. So they essentially don't want to give weapons that could, I'm not saying that Kiev would do this, but that could, um, uh, would be advanced enough to, to launch very, very distant strikes on Russian territory itself. And US officials, as I say, are, are concerned that, that this this would provide um, Russia with a, an excuse in which to uh, conduct perhaps some kind of uh, escalation. Now, I think, as you can imagine, again, this has caused some anger because people say, well, if Russia is going to do uh, some kind of escalation, as they've already done um, in, in recent weeks, I mean, indeed committing war crimes on their attacks on inf- civilian infrastructure, then they are going to do so. They don't need excuses. So why would, do, do you need to be thinking in, in those terms? But nonetheless, that's, that's uh, what the uh, Biden administration have said. But I think if we're taking the long term view here, as depressing as that may sound to, to some uh, listeners, and you know, I imagine that many in Ukraine are thinking, why on earth aren't, can't they give us these weapons if uh, you know, Kiev are pleading for these? I think we just need to look back to to how far things have moved an inch forward in recent months. 
when the war began, there was concerns about even sending tank support. You know, you remember the Germans only sent 5,000 helmets initially and there was a lot of consternation about that. Um, but that was a, a genuine f- fear, you know, amongst European powers uh, that, that, that uh, giving anything other than defensive um, provisions would be seen as very dangerous. Now look where we are. Very, very advanced weaponry in the hands of the Ukrainians. Um, there's even now conversations about giving them more jet fighter jets, which was, of course, uh, something that was very much considered a, 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 a red line issue when the war began. So there really has been an advancement in this space. And I think that, again, it's happened in a gradual way and it's quite hard to track that. But if one was to think back, as I say, uh, many weeks and months, then you can see that things are, are moving forward in this space. And and who knows, maybe within another few months, these kind of drones will be provided to Kiev. But it has to, happen, has to happen at the right pace, or at least that's what the Biden administration would say. Yeah, and I, I, I just kind of mention the fact there's still not kind of space in Ukraine to effectively fly these drones. Both sides have, have relatively effective air defences, um, and they cost quite a lot of money. And where you can kind of mitigate the risk of using a, a high mark as they can fire from 50 kilometers or 50 miles behind behind the lines and move away very quickly flying these drones for and they can fly for kind of 12 to 24 hours at a medium altitude they're still at kind of at risk from being being shot down um, and i think is the us uh, and the uk and other countries that have these higher tech drones and other pieces of equipment that they've resisted sending to Ukraine actually been because they're worried about them landing up in Russian hands. So there was reports earlier this week that alongside a big shipment of uh, nearly 200 million euros in cash to Iran, Russia sent a Javelin and an Enlor launcher anti-tank launcher and essentially what the iranians are very good at is reverse engineering western tech so are these western military powers the uk the us france whoever actually more concerned about losing their hardware into the hands of russia um i remember i was on on the aircraft carrier the queen elizabeth uh days after an f-35 uh, fighter jet had gone off the side. And I was speaking to an American general who had been put in charge of the salvage operation. He was very much of the of the mind. Look, this is an American fighter jet. It might be in British hands. It might have been given to the Brits, but it's our technology. We've we've created it alongside a host of other countries. We will be getting this jet back before any Russian, Chinese, and there was even talk of the Turkish military looking to try and cash in. Um, by capturing and finding this jet first to basically look at the technology because they've been closed out of the F-35 program. So I think that's probably more of the concern on on this front is not that escalatory issues come into into play, actually because they're more worried about there isn't a safe space to fly these drones yet and they could be falling into Russian hands very easily uh, within hours, within days of them landing in Ukraine if they're not used sensibly. I am aware that we are coming towards the end of our episode. So, Roland, if I could come to you first, what are your final thoughts you'd like to leave our listeners with? Yes, well, um, if, if you open the paper tomorrow, you will see, um, uh, you know, this dispatch that, that Joe is working on, um, along with some other colleagues about, you know, voices from the ground and her son. The other thing I hope you will see um, is a thing looking at this this, this diplomatic um, issue, this, this push for talks that uh, Francis alludes to, you know, um, Mike Milley's comments. Um, and there's also an interesting piece um, citing US officials um, uh, on, on NBC today uh, talking about them saying, you know, we don't we don't think either side can win. Maybe, the, you know, the, the winter slowdown is um, an opportunity um, for talks. Um, we're making calls. I mean, currently... The impression is that, yeah, kind of allies are aware of these moves or, or these talks. They're not quite sure what it means. Um, but but again, just to underline, you know, my impression from my conversations with people in Kiev is that, that there is this basic disconnect. Right? There, there, is, there is an assumption that, okay, this war can't be won by military means. It's going to be talks in the West. Um, and in Kiev, they think, no, 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 you, you don't understand. Like, we're going to win on the battlefield. And that is going to collapse Putin's regime. 
Um, I think, and okay, that that is that is as so often when you know you're spitting things out off the top of your head. That that's a bit of a caricature, but that's the basic gap in perceptions, um, and that I think is um, well. One side's right, obviously. We don't know which one. Um, that's the thing that has to be um, bridged, I suppose, um, in one way. Uh, but keep a lookout for that. That's what we're going to be uh, focusing on tomorrow. Over to you next, Joe. What would you like to leave our listeners with? Um, I just want to um, move away and step away from the military side of, of this conflict and go into the humanitarian issue. And um, There is increasing parts of ukraine that are now without electricity without gas without running water and it's starting to get colder now um so we're kind of starting the days off in in almost in sub-zero conditions and it's probably getting up to two or three maybe five degrees if you're lucky in certain areas um but there are still vast amounts of the country that are without kind of the basic needs to survive and that's that's kind of heating and electricity to keep warm and we often we often look at what sort of assistance as Western governments we can give in terms of whether it be missiles, whether it be drones or other things. But maybe 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 we just need to be looking at and asking um, Ukrainian charities what we can do for them in terms of is it uh, electric heaters, which are slightly futile in a lot of situations because many many cities are without power for five or six or seven hours a day, sometimes more. Um, is it can we send more generators? Is it even simple things like blankets and warmer warmer coats that we can could look at supplying um, to charities to people that? And so I've I've spent a lot of a lot of my trip in in Ukraine has been visiting sites that were once kind of headline news because they had literally immediately been struck by a Russian missile or a Russian shell, um, but then we visited them a month or two after after this kind of devastating attack and people are still living in the ruins of these houses without windows so can, can we can can we potentially help by sending contractors out or construction materials out to help people rebuild their houses before winter does become very crippling it's so kind of january february march are probably be some of the coldest months that ukraine will have and i just feel that we're running up to the point where it's a humanitarian crisis um kind of on on the verge of happening and we may be looking too much militarily at the conflict when we should be looking at um, at how we can help Ukrainians on the ground uh, survive the harsh winter coming. And I'll stop there. Thank you, Joe. Over to you, Francis, for your final thoughts. Thanks, Claire. And I would just echo Joe's sentiments there. I think he's absolutely right about the oncoming potential humanitarian tragedy. And I think that's something that we'll certainly try and talk about more in due course on the podcast. I just wanted to end by looking at a story from about five or six days ago that has been published by the Kremlin. And it's about Putin's meeting with some historians and representatives of Russia's traditional religions. And it's really interesting when we've talked about culture so much on this podcast to look at the remarks being made by Putin in quite a... It's relaxed fashion. This is not really as much of a formal speech, I think. So we get perhaps an insight into the kind of messaging that he's putting out and perhaps some of his more inner thoughts on these cultural and historical issues. So as part of these conversations that he had, and it's quite a long uh, collection of remarks, um, and so I'm sort of summarising them here. But the first thing he, he does is talk a lot about uh, history. And it's quite remarkable what he says. is It's unacceptable to repeat the mistakes of the Soviet period when scholars' conclusions were often adjusted to preset templates. Something similar is happening now in some countries in the West, where much is determined by today's radical liberal agenda. It is known that if someone wants to deprive a state of sovereignty and turn its citizens into vassals, they begin by rewriting the history of the country, depriving people of their roots and condemning them to oblivion. Well, I mean, it's very striking reading that because I think it's 
pretty indicative of what Putin in many ways has tried to do within Russia. His analysis may be correct, but he's doing it, it to his own people. I mean, I've been very struck in, in recent years following what's been happening in Russia and looking at history textbooks, for instance. It's been the repatriation of Stalin, a man who committed millions of, uh, of, of, of crimes against his own people, m- murdered millions of them, and yet is now being uh, taught as if he, he didn't kill that number. Memorial, of course, one of the Nobel Prize winners, was silenced and forced to close. Indeed, there's even a textbook in Russia that talks about it, it not being a, a Nazi-Soviet pact, but a Nazi um, sort of allies pact, you know, with Britain and other countries. So real direct distortions of history. So that's quite remarkable. The other couple of things that I thought was worth drawing attention to in his remarks is this idea of Western insemination of, of false consciousness amongst the, the Ukrainians. A really remarkable quote this. He said, um, in Ukraine, the West has managed to instill in the minds of millions of people the pseudo values that led to the fact that they created an anti-Russia on this territory, sowing hatred, raping people's consciousness, depriving them of their true history, their true history. Everything was done to reshape the consciousness of millions, and they very skillfully tried to light the fuse to cause the fall of our country. So this idea that what's happening in Ukraine is in some way not in any way a, a, a conscious act of the Ukrainians, but rather is a manipulation by them of the West as if there is only one true Ukrainian history and it is one that aligns that country with Russia and its sense of a, of a, of a, of a continual lineage where those two countries are, are one. Again, a, a very much a distortion and one that many Ukrainians, of course, would, would repudiate, but fascinating. And last but not least, he talks about justifying the war in Ukraine as uh, offensive for defensive reasons. So he talks about how the West essentially has been a breeding, breeding hate uh, towards Russians and Russia, and that it's been doing it for, for decades, and that it was necessary to launch the war in Ukraine now uh, in order to prevent worse happening later. And indeed, he had talked to, uh, about 1941 and the mistakes that were made in terms of ignoring the warnings about a potential Nazi invasion and not striking and thus saying that actually, by implication, that the war in Ukraine was preventative in some way to stop a, another version of 1941 and some kind of Western invasion, if indeed that, that's uh, what he's alluding to. So, as I say, quite a, a long final thought, but it's a quite a chunky subject, this. Um, but I just thought very, very interesting and perhaps concerning remarks there by Putin that gives an insight into his philosophy. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash audio. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. You can listen to this conversation at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. If you enjoyed the podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly and ask questions or give comments by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, and today on Twitter, Gemma Farrell and Emily Hill. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com.